will be back in Acts chapter 2 today, uh, looking at the middle portion of a passage that uh, is well read in the church, and something I'm reminded of about the church, about um, what God has in store for us, is that, uh, and it even points to where we're looking at with the Advent season, um, I always have to remind myself every year, we do it once a year, right? It's not something we do over and over and over, uh, which order the candles go in. I know the pink one is joy, and that's next week, and I know the first one is hope. Two and four, I always have to review, right, to make sure I get them right. But I was thinking about uh, those things today, so I did some research, and one of the things that came up in that research, and it was a good reminder for, for this as a whole, for our study as a whole, is that everything we do as the church is for a purpose in worship in pointing to Christ's return. And so the Advent season, even as we celebrate it leading up to the, the, birth, the celebration of the birth of the Messiah, and uh, just again, to remind those of you who may not know, Jesus wasn't actually born on December 25th. He probably wasn't even born in the winter. He was probably born in the springtime. But we celebrate his birth this time of year. The reason we celebrate his birth is to remind us that he came and that he is returning. And so this promise leads forward to all of those things. And so... Uh, I'm just reminded of that because everything we do as a church, and as we see that expressed through a passage like Acts chapter 2, we actually are reminded that the church itself is a, a picture of what Jesus is coming to do, coming back to do. We okay? We all right? We do okay? Okay. If we, have, if we have a loud declaration here in the moment, we understand what's going on. All right. And with that pause, anyway, my tongue is dry. I'm going to take a drink. All right. No worries. We're good. I'm glad you guys are here. Let's talk about it. All right. Um, so we're going to be again in Acts chapter 2. Let's go ahead and stand and read this passage again. It's an important passage in the life of the church. And we will look at the center portion of it today. Really, verses 44 through 46, uh, but we'll look at all of it as we open here. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Our Lord, teach us what it means to be your people and sharing all things in common. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things that came to light as I looked at this passage this week 
was a comparison in how we tend to interpret this passage. Now, if you go back into the first couple of chapters of the book of Acts, we see that in, in the first 15, chap, uh, 15 verses of chapter 1, we see the ascension of Jesus, and we see that then the, the disciples, who then become eventually the apostles by name, try to figure out what to do next. And, you know, that's one of the interesting things that we see after Jesus' resurrection in that 50 or so day or 40 days he's on earth, the 10 days following until the, the Holy Spirit descended upon the church, we see that he doesn't leave a, a, an organizational structure in place where we can say, here's the owner's manual, right? I, read, I saw something this week that said, wouldn't it be great if parenting came with a manual? Wouldn't it be great? And I think anybody who is, has parents or is a parent can relate to that, which would be all of us, right? We, I wish sometimes we could just open a, a book and say, this is what you do when the kid falls down during church. Anyway, whatever it may be, this is how it works. But no, along the way, we do have principles that we are called to live by and, and ways that we're supposed to live. But what is Jesus' great commandments to love him and to love each other two rules that we have a really hard time with right and and really here's where the apostles were at this moment jesus ascends and in the in-between time they're going what do we do next well we Go into Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's what he said in verse 8, right? That's what we wrote down. Well, that, they didn't actually say in verse 8. But, you know, they're, they're like, okay. So, so he told them to wait, though. And then at the beginning of chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls upon the church with tongues of fire. And they, they hear the gospel, the people that are present in their own language. And, they, and, and, and again, the dispersion happens. They return. And, and that, that great commission is initiated. It is sent forward to proclaim the good news to the world. And Peter has an amazing sermon through that. And remember, Peter is the guy that six weeks earlier had denied Jesus at that fire when the little girl said, you're one of them, aren't you? That's a threatening thing. But Jesus said, no, I'm sorry, Peter said, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not. But here now he stands before the people who killed Jesus and he says, he proclaims the gospel and that this one, this Christ, is the, the Messiah. This one whom you killed is the one who has come to save you. And he pro proved it by his resurrection. And if they could have killed Peter there, they probably would have. Because they really wanted him to shut up. Stop talking about these things. But the power of the Holy Spirit was such that it came upon the church and it called them together in worship. And at the end of chapter 2, we see what their priorities become. They gather together to hear the apostles' teaching. They break the bread together. They fellowship together. They pray. They, they, they worship together in the temple. They, they go and they proclaim the gospel and those before them are being saved. And there have been entire church models, the Purpose Driven Church and others, that have centered on these 
five elements that you can pull out of this passage. But really what we find here is instead of a prescription, we find a description of what is happening. As the disciples are guided by the Holy Spirit, as they really start understanding everything that Jesus said, remember what, he sa- uh, what they said in the Gospels, they said, Jesus said this then, but we didn't understand it until he was resurrected. I can't tell you how many times I've read that in the Gospels. Over and over and over. This was the moment where they start to understand all the things that Jesus is teaching. This is what happened. In the middle of it, in this passage, verses 44 through 46, we see this thing where they have all things in common. As they listened to the word of the apostles, as they saw the works that the Holy Spirit was doing, they began to live their lives together. Now, sometimes people interpret this and get real legalistic about it, I suppose you could, as some kind of communist or Marxist society where they came and they dumped all their things together and then they distributed it equally. But that's not really what it says here. It says that they had all things in common. That means they had generous hearts to one another. They lived out their faith where they saw someone had need, they helped that person. It's not something where they just came and put it in one giant pool and distributed it all evenly. They recognized this concept called love. And when they saw the need of the people around them, they were generous to them, and they gave as those had had needs and desires along the way. All who believed, in verse 44, were together and had all things in common. This is a very unique spot in the history of the church. Why? Because they were not yet sent out. Everyone who believed in Jesus and had seen his resurrection was right there at that moment. There has never been a time since where that has been the case. Logic defies that argument. Why? Well, right now, we are in Pueblo, Colorado. That's how we can prove that, if you want to get that really simply. Because there are churches meeting throughout our community. There are churches meeting throughout our state and our nation and throughout the world. And so when we see these things come together, this is a very unique place in the history of the church. And what it must have been like to really see all these things that were happening at once. And and it was really to affirm their trust and their faithfulness to the Lord. And that is what the work of the Holy Spirit does. It it affirms what we believe about Jesus. It's called, the the Holy Spirit is described often as the, the humble member of the Trinity. It's never talking about itself. He's never talking about the Spirit. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the Son. He's talking about the Father. But when we see the Trinity work together, we see them all as one. Father, Son, and Spirit. Father, the author of all creation. Son, the agent of that creation and the agent of redemption. And then the Spirit, the one whom we learn of the work of the Father and the Son. All one in the same. And the Spirit at work in the church here is what we find. 
Those who believed were together and had everything in common. They were selling their possessions and belonging and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They saw that their earthly possessions were temporary. We can't take the things that we have with us. It doesn't matter what goes in the ground because we are found to be with the Lord when we trust in Christ. And God, I mean, you know, it's that, that old joke of, you know, the guy who carried all his gold bars to St. Peter at the pearly gates. And Peter says to him, why did you bring pavement? Streets of gold. Okay, come on. Okay, I'm going to try that again. You know, that story about the guy who carries all his gold bars to the pearly gates in St. Peter. And Peter says to him and says, why did you bring pavement? <laughs> this is why I'm not a stand-up. All right. Um, they're like, wait, did he actually tell a joke? You know why I don't tell jokes? Because I can't tell jokes. We all know our giftings. Okay. Anyway, what we find is that everything they have is without purpose unless it's to glorify the Lord. And so when they start talking about selling their possessions, they're helping those around them. They're assisting those who trust in Him. They distribute the proceeds to all. And we see this happen over and over. But before we get into this, this idea of, God doesn't want us to have our own properties. You have to go to the end of verse 46 and realize it says that they went from to their homes. And they went from house to house. They still had earthly possessions. Okay? They still owned things because in order to live life on earth, it takes some things along the way. But they weren't possessive of those things. They were willing to give them up. Now, you know, when we, when we come to that place, a lot of people wonder, well, what about Ananias and Sapphira? Well, if you go to Acts chapter 5, you see the story of this couple that withheld something from the church, that, but they said that they gave it all, right? They, they came and they, and they sold a piece of property, and uh, Ananias goes and, and gives, and it, he, he lies to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit takes his life at that moment. They carried him out. And his wife comes a little while later, and she does the same thing. And they say, you know what? The guys who just carried your husband out, they're going to carry you out too. And she drops. Now that sounds a little rough. But the fact is, is that we don't want to lie to the Holy Spirit. That's the point in that. We want to be honest in our dealings together. That's really what this all comes down to is to, to live out our lives in love. That's why we give as the church. There are, there's another passage, and we'll jump there really quickly. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 9. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth and, and talking about a particular need that the church in Jerusalem had. And he had been traveling throughout, the, uh, throughout Asia Minor, throughout heading into Europe, and, and taking a collection for them. Now, we use this passage a lot of times when we start talking about giving in our church. And it's interesting, you have a copy of the 2022 proposed budget in the bulletin today. I didn't plan it that way, okay? God did that. 
but what we find is that, again, it's rather than an amount, it's the principle of the gift. It's why you are giving. Because when, when we see this passage here, Paul was taking a, an offering to help another area. He was not taking an offering to support the needs of his local congregation and, and those kinds of things. And, but yet, here, here he talks about the heart which is there. Because apparently the Corinthians had some issues. If you've ever read First and Second Corinthians, you would realize the Corinthians, they had some issues. And so the, the problem came when they, they made their giving, instead of an offering, they made it an obligation. That in, in order to, to have a blessing of the Lord, you had to do such and such and such and such and such. And that include this. The problem is, we don't find that in Scripture. What God desires from our hearts, and what we find in the Jerusalem church, and what, what Paul communicates to the Corinthians here, is he wants us to give joyfully without compulsion. Let's look at verses 6 through 9 in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work, as it is written, He has distributed freely as he has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. So if you have been given much realize that it is a gift and now we give forward in joy to that and that's what we find here in the jerusalem church is that they realized that there was something special happening here with the coming of the holy spirit empowering them to worship him they were meeting to worship together and they were contributing to the needs so that those around them had exactly that what they needed and then it was kind of like when you, uh, you see that um, those instructions rinse and repeat. Guess what? Let's do it again. Now, I was reading some interesting things, and one of the reasons I'm here is because I've been, again, reading through this, this book called Devoted to God's Church by Sinclair Ferguson. And in talking about this passage, he quotes a book from, uh, from 2008, which isn't terribly long ago, Right? But remember that we had some economic issues back then, those of you who were around? And then um, kind of came through all that, what, whatever your political leanings are, you can have your opinions about those things. But, you know, we've had those issues again since then. Why? Because the economy tends to be cyclical. It goes up and it goes down. It goes up and it goes down. So, anyway, the book that he quotes is called Passing the Plate. It's by... Christian Smith, Michael Emerson, and Patricia Snell from Oxford University Press um, in 2008. Now, his book, this book, was published in 2020, before the pandemic, January 2020. So this is relatively recent. The reason I bring out that date is because it's not that long ago. Now, the world is not the same place that it was 13 years ago, 14 years ago almost. But it's not that different either. I'm going to read a decent amount here. I don't do this often. 
In 2008, two sociology professors, Christian Smith and Michael Emerson, in collaboration with Patricia Snell, published a fascinating study of financial stewardship in the churches in North America. It is a very clever title, Passing the Plates. Smith and Emerson are not TV hucksters begging, bargaining, or bickering for money. Their book is not a popular tract urging Christians to give more, but a serious academic study based on the gathering and analysis of data by careful research. Uh, the book's elite publisher is Oxford University Press. Nevertheless, they subtitled the introduction, The Riddle of Stingy Giving. They say that, despite a reputation for generosity, American, this is the quote, American Christians give away relatively little money to religious and other purposes. A sizable number of Christians give little sums of money. Only a small percent of American Christians give generously in proportion to what their churches call them to give. Most American Christians are remarkably ungenerous. That's the end quote. Now, I'm going to continue with, uh, with Sinclair Ferguson's words here. They go on to note that 20% of professing Christians do not give. They calculate that if only those Christians who are genuinely regular church attenders a few times a month or, or more frequently were to give 10% of their after-tax income, so we start getting into the pharisaical stuff here, okay? The result would be that there would be $46 billion, yes, billion additional, yes, additional, available to fund ministries of all kinds. They go on to provide detailed pages of potential ministries that could be funded handsomely, even lavishly, by such giving. Now, I don't say that because I think you have a billion dollars sitting in your pocket or your bank account right now. I, I, we are who we are. But just think about that for a minute. 20% that the statistics showed in 2008, again, not that long ago, did not give to religious institutions or to their church. And that if those who just attend church regularly would give their after-tax tithe, that would be the 10%, which I've heard people argue you should give 10% before you tithe because the government is, anyway, blah, 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 blah. That's not the point. If we were more generous, how much more could happen for the kingdom? And I don't say that at any measure of guilt trip. Those of you who know me at all, you know that I'm not going to be the one that's going to be out there beating for your money. I'm not going to do it. Because I don't think that that is a worshipful attitude to guilt trip somebody into giving. But the fact is, is if we all gave as we have been given and realize that we are stewards of everything that we own, that everything that we have is temporary, how many more could come to Christ as a result of that generous spirit? And see, that's what we find here in Acts chapter 2. It's not a legalistic attitude of, I'm not supposed to have any possessions. It's the fact that we realize that they weren't ours in the first place. They all belong to the Lord. Nobody's hitching a U-Haul to the hearse. It all goes back. I mean, I've got, my dad's been gone 13 years now. I've still got a lot of his junk. We've got 
all kinds of things that could be useful to the kingdom, but we hold on to them for whatever reason. And it goes beyond our checkbooks. And so I'll, I'll just quit beating that drum here for a minute. But it goes with everything that we are, all of our talents, all of our gifts, our ability. Remember that, um, the bring the all ties into the tour house, that one, that song, right? All your money, talents, time, and love. All right? Everything that we have belongs to him first. And that's what the early church was seeing here, that in this fellowship together, they had the opportunity to provide for one another. And that's what we get to do as the church in proclaiming the gospel. What is the effect of that kind of heart? Hello? Sorry. And day by day, let's look at verse 46 and 47. We'll come back to the worship of Jesus next week. But, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, again, they had their own homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Gratitude. When we realize that it's all, it, it's all God's anyway. And the effect of that is praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It wasn't the three points in a poem and a, and a joke at the start sermon that saved those people. It was the hand of God at work through the church. And we've all got a lot of stuff, and God's called us to be stewards of the things that we have and to be generous with what we have and to do what we can to proclaim the gospel. But the way we do it is the great commandment, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And when we look at that kind of heart, it changes what our checkbook looks like, if you still have one of those. QuickBooks, your bank account. We realize that giving forward proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ. And I will say that in our leadership, in, in church leadership, as we've been planning the budget for 2022, which you have in your bulletin, we have very intentionally moved forward in proclaiming the gospel and to invest rather than in a, in a place, in a facility, realizing that that is what it is. We need to be stewards of that and, and take good care of those things, and we do what we can to do that. Mostly, we are here to invest our lives into the people and the community around us. And so we need to be about proclaiming the good news. And one of the things we're going to work to do in the coming year is to re-engage our community since we're still working through this thing called COVID. How is that going to look? And part of that is that we are adjusting some staffing things through that. You can ask your questions about that later. I'm not going to dive into that because I don't think that's a sermon. But we want to re-engage the community in order to see people come to Christ. So much about what the church, the church as a whole, but it can be described of our church as well. So much of what the church has become about is surviving instead of thriving and to proclaiming the good news. And how was that expressed 
when we go back to the earliest days of the church, we shared everything we had together in faith to bless the Lord. And what did he do in response to that? He added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, if, 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 if we follow that statistic, how many days are there in a year? 365? Well, that's a pretty good church growth set. Right? As we live out our faith together, it should be an expression to those around us who need to know Christ. That's what was happening here. With their generous hearts, they were expressing the faithfulness of the Lord. And so how do we then worship the Lord? We worship with everything that we are. And don't don't think that this is some kind of pressure thing that I'm trying to twist your arm to do something. I want you to be accountable to the Lord and what He wants you to do and how He wants you to give. This is not between you and me or you and the church. This is between you and the Lord. It affects the church, and that's what was happening here. It affects the, God, the work of the Lord in the, in the world around us. But he calls us to radical obedience and trusting him. So this time of year, we see so many generous hearts. I mean, we've got, Caitlin told me we had 17 boxes. We may have more from there. Next Sunday is our collection day for shoe boxes for new missions in Haiti. And if there's a place in the world that needs the love of Christ, if you've watched the news at all in the past year, it's the island of Haiti, or the nation of Haiti, next to the Dominican Republic. We get the opportunity to give generously, to give and help out at, at Oakwood Estates this year with Christmas. And people get in their minds, they want kids to have a Christmas. There's nothing wrong with that in itself. But ultimately, what we must realize is that it's not about somebody else getting anything except for God getting the glory. We are called to live generously because that is how God is blessed when we recognize it's all from Him and for Him. Christ gave everything. Read Philippians chapter 2. He laid down His glory so that we might come to faith in Him and live the way He loves world. So I ask you today, how is God calling you to serve? Is he calling you to that place of radical obedience, to trust in him, to trust in him first, that he gave you life, and he waits for you to receive that life through the work of the Holy Spirit, to redeem you, that you might trust in him as your Savior. But then as you walk in obedience to the Lord, the question asks, how then shall we live? It says in Romans, if God is for us, who can be against us? He will bless as you desire to bless him. So consider these things in your life, in your heart, in your faith, and live in a way that blesses the Lord today. Let's pray. Lord, you are good. I pray, God, that as you um, 
as you lead us in your spirit, by your work, that we would bless your name. In this Christmas season where we talk about giving, may we realize the gift that was first given, and that is Christ. And that at your return, we would see as many people as we possibly can come to that place where they would be in your presence. Help us to bless you now as we worship you. Give us courage to radically obey your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand together as we sing. The altar's open. If you have a decision to make, let's bless the Lord together. Give it.